A healthy young writer, suddenly and inexplicably, develops an acute illness that leads her on a journey that baffles the medical community. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I'm joined by Susanna Kahalen, author of Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness. Susanna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So prior to your illness, what did you do for a living? I was working at the time as a general assignment reporter for the New York Post, which basically means you do something new every day. And it's from crime to, to celebrities to gossip to kind of like New York-related news stories. So that's what I was doing at the time. So what was your previous experience as a patient before, you, before all this happened? You know, I, you know, I was 24 then, and I actually had some experiences as a patient, more so than the average 24-year-old. I actually was diagnosed with melanoma when I was 19. Wow. And so it was caught very early and just needed to be removed, very simple surgery. So I had a little bit of an experience as a patient beyond that, um, nothing else. But um, I did know that kind of feeling of terror when you get a call with some bad news early on in my life. So how did this particular illness start? Well, you know, it started in a way that was so um, kind of amorphous and, and, and difficult to pin down. It it started with kind of feeling feeling a little bit under the weather, and I had a, an inability to concentrate at work. I felt off. I kept t- talking to my friends and saying, I don't feel like myself. That was something I said a lot. I don't feel like myself. Um, it, but it progressed to having something very physical as well. I had numbness on one side of my body, which um, was scary to me and scary to my doctors and actually got me to go to the doctor. But concurrently, I was also having mood swings, which I didn't connect at the time. So there was kind of many things happening, um, kind of physical, flu-like illness, numbness, but also kind of more emotional symptoms as well. So how did the doctors you saw early on respond to these symptoms? Well, the first doctor I went to heard about this numbness and was, and was frankly worried. Um, the thought was maybe I'd had a stroke. That was definitely a concern. One-sided numbness is, is a scary thing. So I got two MRIs and a lot of blood tests and everything came back normal. And the thought was that I, I had mono. So that was the kind of, that was the first diagnosis I received. Uh, one of many, but one of the first. Yeah, and I, and I think someone who had a history of melanoma, I mean, I would be scared for someone having some kind of localized symptoms. So right. they, they got you a couple brain MRIs and they were normal. Yes. And you can you continue to work through all this? Kind of. <laughs> a little bit. I would say not well. But um, I, you know, I, 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 sh- I would show up to work. I'd actually, I took off a lot of days, which was unlike me. I just wouldn't show up. And when I did show up, I was frazzled and I was uninspired. I, I would come, we, ha- we have pitch meetings every Tuesday where we pitch ideas. What, what, what are we going to work on this week? And, um, and one, one day I came in with absolutely nothing, which was extremely unlike me. I always had something. Um, and so, you know, yes, I was going to work, but I wasn't a, a model kind of worker at the time. So you write about a very disjointed interview you had with John Walsh uh, from America's Most Wanted. Um, was one of the last things you did before the illness progressed. After the book came out, did you ever have the chance to talk to him afterwards, you know, in kind of retrospect? What a great question. I I have not. I wonder if he remembers me. I I somehow doubt it. I don't know. I mean, I was so bizarre, you know, laughing inappropriately at certain lines. I think I, when when he said the word cunning, for some reason that struck me as very funny. But prior to that interview, I was walking down the hallway, and at the Post they have framed front pages, you know, famous front pages of the New York Post on the walls. And, 
and they kept they, they it was almost as if they were alive they were breathing and the walls kind of shot up and later i would find out that was kind of an alice in wonderland effect that was happening to me and when i went to the interview i was you know babbling away and i realized also that while he was talking i could understand what he was saying but I could not translate what he was saying into word form. So I couldn't write down as he spoke. I couldn't actually write down what he was saying. So that was, I didn't even really think, I think I just thought, oh, I was, I was just so overwhelmed by what was going on in, you know, what, what I was experiencing. I didn't think too much of it. But looking back, that, that inability to, to translate words from someone else, spoken word, into writing was very disconcerting. So how did your illness then progress so, so from there, so I had that Alice in Wonderland effect thing, and then I also had what I would later learn was photophobia. The lights in Times Square where I would walk to and from my house from work, they were so bright that they hurt me. I mean, they hurt my eyes. They made me want to throw up. And, and that night, I had my first seizure, first of many seizures. And, uh, and from there, I, I became even more um, emotional, moody, and then became actually actively hallucinating, and psychotic. So it, it progressed very quickly from that moment. So after you develop seizure disorder, kind of some schizophrenic-like symptoms, you're admitted to NYU? Yes. And what happened then? So from there, I, I, when I was first admitted, I was at my, my most acutely psychotic. And at that point, I had ideas that I, I was on the news. I saw myself on the news. The nurses were undercover. You know, my dad was turning into people and playing tricks on me. I mean, I had the, the things that I thought um, and the way I behaved. I mean, I tried to escape. I would rip out EEG wires in my head because they were trying to monitor for me for seizures and IVs and run screaming down the hallway. I had to be sedated. I was put into a chest posy, which is kind of like a straitjacket. And um, I was a bad, <laughs> I was not a very good patient. So that was the beginning. I was actively psychotic, psychotic and hallucinating. You know, almost I mean, a lot. I'm very intensely hallucinating. By the second week in, however, um, I stopped being actively psychotic and started becoming catatonic. So at that point, I really didn't use many words. I would grunt. I couldn't really write. Uh, you know, when I, when people would ask me to to to, to do, you know to to do syllables and, and consonants, they were they came up kind of muted and muffled, and I, I had a lisp, and I spoke really slowly when I did speak, and I would drool, and I had tr problems swallowing liquids. So clearly, the disease was progressing, but at that point, they had no idea what the disease was. And your book is so vivid, exactly what happened to you in the hospital. How how did you piece things back together? during some of these kind of more florid, uh, psychotic-type episodes? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. So most of the time in the hospital, I do not remember and had to rely on parents, my medical records, the doctors. I had to rely on kind of being a journalist to recreate it. However, I do remember my hallucinations, at least some of them. And I remember seeing myself on the television. And I remember seeing my father. I, believe, I had this whole long psychotic delusion that my father had killed my stepmother and that there were news trucks camped outside of my hospital room waiting to interview me. I remember all of this. And this isn't a false memory, I know, because I, I didn't have the ability to share what was going on, what I was seeing with other people, but I remember it so vividly. So it was very hard for me to understand why don't I remember most of my time in the hospital 
and most of the time when I was sick, but I remember things that were not real. It was a very difficult thing for me to understand until I spoke to an expert in schizophrenia who explained to me why that was probably that was that was like actually very um common and and he would and he would expect that actually because he said hallucinations are typically of a high high emotional content, right? So they're imprinted in the brain in a stronger way. They also said that in the case of hallucinations, they're self-generated, and people with schizophrenia tend to remember things that are self. People in general, but people with schizophrenia to a greater degree, tend to recall things that are self-generated, as in you know created by the self, more so than external stimuli or anything external. So when I, when that was explained to me later you know, later when I had been recovered, it was kind of reassuring because I didn't understand why. Why do I remember these things? Um, but yeah, so so mo- even though most of the time was, is a kind of blank blankness, I do have moments of remembering these hallucinations. If you're just tuning in, this is ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and we're joined by Susanna Kahalen, author of Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness. So I guess if we're looking for a white knight in your story, it's Dr. Najjar, correct? Yes, very much so. So so what was his background? So Dr. Najjar was born in Syria, and he um, he has an amazing history. In fact, he should write a book. Um, he When he was about 10 years old, he was taken out of a Catholic school um, that he, where he was attending and told that he was not smart enough to continue there and he should learn a trade because he would never amount to anything. And he was put into public school and obviously, you know, he just did amazingly well and then came to the U.S. and became one of the best neurologists in the world. So he has this incredible backstory. So I think because he has that, he really has stressed the value of getting a very in-depth patient history. And I think that kind of shapes the way he, he treats his patients. So he approaches your parents, I guess, at this point, if you're not competent, about doing a brain biopsy to try to figure out what's happening. What were their thoughts about going ahead with that? Oh, they, I mean, you know, they were, it was a combination that, you know, he has, when he walked into the room, they felt, oh my gosh, this guy is going to figure it out. He has such a sense of confidence. So they, they felt a little bit of relief because they had no answers. This was three weeks into the hospital stay. I was getting worse and still there were no answers. So when he walked in, that was a relief. But brain biopsy is a, is a really terrifying thing. And my grandmother, my, my father's mother, was a nurse. And she always thought, you never mess with the brain. She used to say that, you know, never go into the brain. So my dad had my his mother, you know, in his mind kind of saying, like, don't let them do this. But they trusted him so much, they said, okay, you know, we would have to go ahead and do it. And there was no real other, you know, that, that was the next step. They had to go forward and do that. So what did your brain biopsy show? So the brain biopsy showed inflammation um, in the brain, but what actually confirmed that the diagnosis actually got me diagnosed was a spinal tap, which happened concurrently. And what did that show? So the spinal tap was sent to University of Pennsylvania, which was at the time the one place in the world that tested for a newly discovered form of autoimmune encephalitis. And the spinal tap came back positive for what's called anti-NMDA receptor autoimmune encephalitis. And it was a disease that was really properly named in 2007, and I was treated in 2009. And at the time, I was the 217th patient 
to be diagnosed with the disease. And in reading, it seems like that the disease was mostly found in women that had had teratomas. Yes, exactly. So the way that they first identified this disease is they had about five women who came in with personality changes, you know, basically what I was describing before, personality changes, you know, with usually a flu-like symptoms before, and then entering catatonia and some people entering coma. And they all shared this teratoma in their ovaries. So that led doctors to realize, okay, I think this is one disease we're talking about. And that led them to later discover an antibody that they shared that was attacking the brain, the NMDA receptor in the brain. Now, I did not have a teratoma, and everyone who has this disease does not have a teratoma, but those teratomas led doctors to actually discovering the disease. So how did they treat you? It's a fairly simple regimen of, you know, how you would treat most autoimmune diseases. For me, it was steroids, plasmapheresis, and IVIG treatment. For other people, sometimes they have to do second-line treatment, which involves kind of chemotherapy, rituximab, other things like that. Um, in my case, I did not need that, but it, you know, it's it's a long, you know, process. I was on steroids for about a year, and I had about 20 rounds of IVIG. But it's fairly simple, considering how devastated I was at, at the height of the disease. How long till you were back to being 100 percent? You know, it's it's so hard because it's hard to say. You know, I, I would say probably a year and a half, a year and a half after my diagnosis, I felt like myself again. What what's really was chilling to me in reading the book is, you know, how many people that had your symptomatology in 1970, 1980, 1990 are just right now diagnosed as just having schizophrenia? Oh, yeah. I mean, even 2004. Even now, people still are going undiagnosed if they don't have the right doctor who knows about this disease. So that's been a motivating factor in me and just kind of spreading the word about that this disease exists and that it should be on the panel of diseases that are investigated if someone comes in with a psychiatric break. So that's been a real goal of mine um, because undoubtedly, without a doubt, there have been people who have been misdiagnosed and who have had this disease. And I mean, I've met them, I've talked to them, and in fact, I did a talk at a psychiatric hospital and after me and a, and a doctor did a grand rounds there, they actually found that someone who had been there for four years had the same disease that I had and was misdiagnosed having schizophrenia. Well, I, I think it's really an amazing book for anyone who's a, a clinician or, or even not a clinician because I think it is such a, a beautifully written, kind of chilling story of something that could happen to any of us. And uh, it, it's a really a wonderful book, a great read. And hopefully kind of future people will be able to be diagnosed a little bit early and because not everyone's going to have a white night. So, uh, you know, I think all, all of us, you know, have to aspire to be a little bit more like Dr. Najjar. So, Susanna, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I really uh, I loved your book. Please read it. Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It was a great interview. This is Dr. John Russell. For more information on this podcast or others in the series, please visit reachmd.com slash book club. Thanks for listening.